Polaris, or the North Star, marks the northern direction and was used by slaves to reach freedom. To this day, the North Star is a symbol of hope, passion, drive, and purpose. But the question is, where on earth am I? And where is the North Star? To everyone tuning in from all around the world, this is Finding the North Star, a podcast created in hopes of becoming content with my African-American identity. I'm your host, Krista Savage-White, here to educate myself and others. The first part of this series will cover topics involving culture, contemporary issues, and history about Black people in America. Stay tuned to find out today's topic. Today's episode is titled, Newsflash, Black People Are Not a Monolith. This episode covers the following topics. The monolithic perspective of Black people in American society. The difference between Black people and their experiences based on background and upbringing, plus near-universal struggles with racism. The Uncle Tom stereotype that has played the Black community as a whole. The history of differences and commonalities among African-American folks pre- and post-Civil War. The truth about Black people voting Democrat plus the myth of the Black vote. Questions to answer during this episode and after. How have you perceived Blackness and Black people? How has your upbringing influenced how you see Black people? What prior knowledge do you have about the subject of Black identity? What are some new things you learned in this episode? How has your perception of blackness and black people changed after listening to this episode? Considering your answers to these questions, how will you hold yourself and others accountable for perceptions and treatment of black people? It's okay to admit your biases. We all have them. Even a person speaking into your ear has them. But self-awareness is the first step. Even after listening to this episode, I encourage everyone to do further reading by viewing the cited sources of this podcast and other credible sources on this matter via Google or another search engine. I would also like to note that I use Black and African American interchangeably in this episode, though not all Black people are African American. Despite outrage against racially motivated crimes, Blackness is seen as a monolith, with foci on a narrow range of experiences and collective references such as Black culture. This happens throughout the political spectrum, regardless of if one is liberal, conservative, or in the middle. Though those that identify as liberal or conservative see it differently, with liberals thinking that every black person shares the same opinion on racism, while conservatives think that black immigrants are successful because they don't play the race card or play the victim like African Americans. Louis Chude Soke's The Newly Black Americans elaborates on the different perceptions of American society between Africans and African Americans. He wrote, African immigrants, as evident in this literature, as in the now growing body of research, do not necessarily experience or respond to racism in the same way or share the same notions of identity or affiliation as African Americans. They also do not imagine themselves white or necessarily see whiteness as a position of desirable privilege. Some Africans have a desire to assimilate with white people and don't want to identify as black. For example, 
They may engage in behaviors like skin bleaching, associate with white people through interracial marriage, living in white neighborhoods. It doesn't help that they are already expected to assimilate into American society anyway. There are different histories with African-Americans being victims of oppression in the U.S. through slavery, Jim Crow, and being barred from the same opportunities as white people. In contrast, many African immigrants have been treated as model minorities by white people and come to the States with an educational and professional background. African immigrants have their struggles based on where they came from, the environment they live in, but there is a difference in how white people perceive Africans and African Americans. Africans are more tokenized, perceived as polite, hardworking, and less of a threat, while African Americans are seen as lazy, unintelligent, and angry. According to a report from the New American Economy, which describes itself as a bipartisan research and advocacy organization fighting for smart federal, state, and local immigration policies that help create our economy and create jobs for all Americans, about two-fifths of African immigrants hold bachelor's degrees, with the most popular fields being STEM and healthcare. Statistics and education in different contribution categories exceed U.S. population overall. The feeling that Africans have taken opportunities from African Americans has caused tension between them, and white people have instigated it through tokenization, through barring African Americans from having a chance to prove themselves, and using African immigrants to perpetuate the myth of meritocracy. See the irony in saying, I don't see color, while at the same time clearly having biases towards Africans and degrading African Americans? Though make no mistake, Africans are still perceived as black based on phenotype, so they still face racism and undermining of their accomplishments. Look up the stories about some African children that were accepted into Ivy League schools, and they're still white people thinking they only got in due to affirmative action. But factors like the stereotypes, lack of ties to slavery, and cultural and linguistic ties to their home country make for wide differences between them and African Americans. Yes, apartheid in South Africa and colonization of African countries happen, and racism and colorism exist in those countries. Though, let's focus on the U.S. for now. According to the Pew Research Center, there are 46.8 million black people in the U.S. as of 2019. 46.8 million black American experiences are lumped as a universal experience. I, look, I get that we're all black, but Africans... African-Americans, Afro-Latinos, Afro-Caribbeans, half-black people, and black people who come from countries like Canada, the UK, Germany, and Guyana all have different experiences, especially based off their cultures and languages. Of those 46.8 million people, 2.4 million are black Hispanics Latinos. 3.7 million are multiracial. And regardless of whether they were Hispanic, Latino, multiracial, or monoracial, 4.6 million are black immigrants. African and Caribbean immigrants make up 88% of the black immigrant population. African immigrants have the ability and very often identify as their ethnicity before their race, example being identifying as Sudanese or Ghanaian before black. Even past that, there are thousands of tribes and ethnic groups throughout the African continent, which is a discussion for another time. Though the truth remains in that someone who is a second or third generation American of Senegalese descent 
is different from me, a descendant of slaves who does not have the privilege of tracing my roots to any African country, tribe, or ethnic group. Despite the model minority archetype, their struggles in America are not commonly brought up in the immigration debate. It's no secret that black Americans get punished more harshly than white Americans for the same crime. And when it comes to police brutality and incarceration, the criminal justice system just sees black, not the other ethnicities or nationalities, just black. That's not always brought up. But as we speak, there are Africans and Afro-Caribbean immigrants facing the same harsh treatment as African-Americans, and some of them were victims of police brutality. For example, in 1999, four NYPD officers murder Amadou Diallo, who was from Guinea. Breaking the law puts immigrants at risk for detainment and deportation, and it can be just for petty crimes. American racial classification fails to recognize that there are cultural and societal differences between Africans and African Americans, as well as Afro-Latinos, Afro-Caribbeans, and half-black people, whom are also not all half-African American. The census workers used to record a person's race on their behalf before 1960, and then from 1960 onwards, respondents were gradually given permission to record their identity themselves. During the days of slavery, Free people and slaves were the only two categories, and it would be reasonable to think about the three-fifths rule, as that had to do with how to count slaves into the U.S. population. The census began in 1790 and has significantly evolved since that time, taking cultural, societal, and political differences into account, with favoritism towards white people, because terms to reference non-white people have evolved. Hispanic-Latino category was not introduced until 1980, and the multiracial category was not introduced until 2000. Before that year, folks could only select one race. Research about the biases of the census would definitely be interesting to investigate, but that's for another time. Going back to the part about Black people having different experiences, all groups mentioned above have their own struggles, so this is not meant to be a denial of that. Mixed-race people have struggles with their identity, trying to figure out which race they belong to, which one they feel more connected to, and dealing with ridicule from both sides. The criticism of not being black enough and also being too black or not enough of another race is a common struggle in stories about half-black people. Not all are half-white, half-Asian, half-Ave-American, half-Latino, and half-Pacific Islander combinations with black exist too. Search up the stories about mixed-race people, common theme. In terms of phenotype, there's the struggle of not looking black, for example, having green eyes, light skin. Though non-mixed light-skinned black people exist and white-passing half-black people exist. As for black immigrants, while they do have the privilege to know their specific ancestry and are held to higher degree in terms of work ethic than African-Americans, they have the same risk of facing police brutality and, along with ICE and trying to navigate a new environment, brings challenges of its own. Of course, black people have different personalities, interests, opinions, and that's another thing about blackness not being a monolith. We may have the near-universal concern of racism, but political opinions are not universal, 
and there are varying opinions on the same topic. Let's talk more about some of that. Throughout centuries, there have been many negative stereotypes of black people. Common traits that white people wanted to portray in these stereotypes were those of laziness, dishonesty, and foolishness. One of the most prominent ones that black people sometimes use to describe a sellout is Uncle Tom. This one is worth capitalizing on, as this will help get deeper into the core about the subject of black identity. Uncle Tom is the main character from Harriet Beecher Stowe's book, Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uncle, Uncle, Uncle Tom is portrayed as dependable, gentle, and loyal, but also in desire of white approval, similar to the Miami stereotype, which will be talked about in the Misogynoir episode. To put it differently, he served his masters and didn't rebel on what they told him. Even when they harassed him, chased him, beat him up, and called him names, Uncle Tom remained kind and passive. Though that wasn't enough, as his masters eventually killed him due to not revealing information about two runaway female slaves. It was an anti-slavery novel, but the trope of Uncle Tom being passive to his slave masters despite wrongdoings cost him in the end, and that is where the pejorative term comes from. It is normally used by other black people when a black person betrays their own race. It has been used towards those who deny racism is a problem, or stand up for white people at the expense of black livelihood. Examples include Candace Owens, the contemporary conservative pundit, Republican U.S. Senator Tim Scott, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, etc. However, it has also been used to dehumanize any black person who goes into academics and scores really high, which is what I realized as I read the scholarly article from research sociologist Frank A. Petroni titled Uncle Tom's. White Stereotypes in the Black Movement. It's from 1970, and while I like to use articles from within the past 10 years, the points in it definitely apply to today's environment and are worth noting when it comes to talking about black identity and how the history of the term Uncle Tom plays a role in shaping race relations. They may not even betray black people, but the two sides are like neither white nor black people expect a black person to perform well. Athletes have been more prized over the years. Think LeBron James, Michael Jordan, Jackie Robinson, etc. And this is how people throughout the world think that black people are only athletes, not intellectuals or recipients of college scholarships. It has been pushed that black people are intellectually inferior. So for white people to be threatened by a smart black person and for black people to feel betrayed by a smart black person is like a lose-lose scenario for the person in the center of it. I feel like from the outside looking in, unless you're black, it's unlikely you'll understand the deep extent that it has. Intelligence has been associated with whiteness, and when a black student is rejected from their black peers because they make A's or because they run for student government or because they do academic extracurriculars, they are branded with that term or another term such as Oreo or just simply described as acting white. It doesn't help that white counselors have discouraged black people from reaching the stars and being high performers by insinuating that the other white kids are a threat. It's very complicated because while I am fortunate to have never been called such terms, I have felt that I was more tied to my white peers than my black peers due to my rank and have insulted myself by thinking that I act white. I come from a racist county in North Carolina, and even if the racism hasn't been blatant, it's still there and that pressure from white people in my county is present. It's a small county, though it's predominantly white and black, 
with a very small population of non-black POC. Racism in the countryside can hit rather differently from racism in urban areas. Let's talk about how location affects experiences. As a bridge, let's bring back the Uncle Tom stereotype for a moment. That stereotype was used to describe black Southerners who moved to the North pre and during Great Migration period. As they settled in cities such as New York, Chicago, and Detroit, they had codes of conduct reminiscent of Jim Crow expectations, despite trying to escape the Jim Crow laws and its effects. By the way, the Great Migration happened in two periods. The first one happened from 1910 to 1940, and the second one happened from 1940 to 1970. Six million black people moved to areas like the North, Midwest, and the West during those time periods for industrial jobs and to escape poverty. Though back to the antebellum point in time, white Southerners were extremely pro-slavery. They believed that abolishing it would disturb the racial order and jeopardize racial norms, a.k.a. white people controlling black people. In the history books, the North was painted as a less racist and a much better place for black people than the South. While black Southerners did move for more freedom and economic opportunities, antebellum and post-antebellum period, it was still not free of racism. Maybe obvious, but the history books wouldn't want you to see it that way. In fact, white Northerners painted black female Southerners as foreign. Yep, white supremacy existed over there. Others went to the North to unite with their family. Though, regardless of reasoning, they wanted the same treatment and opportunities as white people. However, Northern African Americans did not have access to many resources. Some depended on generous white people. Black leaders, attempt to, black leaders attempted to lobby with local and state governments to pass laws granting black rights, though suffrage for them was virtually non-existent. Though there were some differences between Northern and Southern black people, on average, northern black people were more likely to graduate from high school, obtain higher levels of education, and earn a higher income than their southern counterparts. The northern black men were also more competitive for jobs, although southern black men worked in labor jobs more. And the ones who were not employed, the migrants, were looking for a job. Although for women, northern black women had a higher employment rate than southern women. Along with employment, marriage was less likely with northern women, and if married, were less likely to live with their spouses in comparison to Southern women, except among women 55 to 64. Northern women also had higher rates of divorce and separation. The information comes from an article from sociology professor Stanley Lieberson of the University of Arizona and Christy A. Wilkinson of the University of Chicago. While it is from the 70s, it highlights some of the differences between Northern and Southern black people especially during the post-antebellum period, and especially based off of gender. Though back inside the antebellum era right quick, through any means necessary, rather through writing to politicians, serving in the military, relying on white abolitionists, black people in the North fought for their right to exist and to be given the same opportunities as white people. They may not have been slaves, but slavery in the South did affect them. Because black people wanted leaders that would help to end slavery, 
The majority of the black population supported the Republican Party, despite not promising the abolishment of slavery. For them, not expanding slavery was a start. While at it, let's get into political stances. Although statistics show that the vast majority of black people vote Democrat nowadays, there are different perspectives on the same political topic, and not all of them identify with the Democratic Party. In fact, many of them don't. News outlets have talked about the black vote as if it's a universal thing and has contributed to Republicans pushing for voter suppression and other policies that harm the rights of black people. Theodore R. Johnson, who works for the Brennan Center for Justice, wrote a New York Times article titled How the Black Vote Became a Monolith. It raised an excellent point, stating that an enduring unity at the ballot box is not confirmation that black voters hold the same views on every contested issue but rather that they hold the same views on the one most consequential issue, racial equality. You may have seen conservatives on the internet say that Republicans were the ones fighting for black people, unlike the Democrats, which actually was true in a time in history. Post-Civil War, Republicans were pro-black suffrage, pro-black representation, and they followed up on that through enacting the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. And the vast majority of the 300-plus black people in office were Republicans. Though racism and inequity were still alive and well, as Jim Crow laws started to be enforced by the Democratic Party just a few years after the amendments were passed, and they continued to bar black people from white spaces for decades. Many black people voted Republican during those decades, but then that started to drop as Democrats advocated for civil rights and Republicans didn't advocate as much for it. In effect, support for Republicans dropped, and the party hasn't received support from more than 15% of black voters since the mid-1960s. The reality is that each of the party's stances became reversed over time, and even back at that time, not all black people identified as Republican, but the majority still voted for Republicans anyway. That scenario still applies today, but with the majority of black people voting for Democrats. A conclusion that can be drawn here goes back to Johnson's quote, saying that black voters held the same view on the issue of racial equality. Black people vote based on which party aligns more with their interests, especially since the rights and livelihood of black people are always at risk. Based on the evidence, that happens to be the Democratic Party. Recently, the Democratic candidates in state and federal elections earn more than 90% of black votes, while the Republican candidates only earn a single-digit percentage of black votes. Because there are differences in opinion on how racial equality should be tackled, labeling the black vote as a unified vote is demoralizing and ignores the diversity of thought that exists beneath the concern of black rights. We don't all play the victim, nor do we all believe every talking point on social media, think ACAB or how trending causes change every couple of weeks. And even outside the issue of police brutality, Black people have a variety of opinions on other social justice issues and hot-button topics. In summary, when blackness is portrayed as a monolith, whether it be by personality, opinions, or experiences, it ignores the complexity of experiences based on factors like upbringing, residency, gender, sexuality, and socioeconomic status. In the media, white people have always been portrayed as multidimensional individuals despite their wrongdoings. Meanwhile, when a black person commits a crime or does something out of line, the whole race is blamed for it. That's how the idea of white people being superior and the generalization of all black people being dumb, uneducated, or criminals has been pushed. 
not just in the U.S., but in other countries around the world as well. China comes to my mind as I say this, though anti-blackness over there is something to talk about another time. With ideological, societal, and cultural differences, there is truly no one unified black experience. Different portrayals of black people by white people have caused lumping of all black people as a monolith. There remains a debate on whether to use black or African-American and conflicts on whether a person is black or African-American. That varies from person to person. I interchangeably use both for myself, but I feel that African-American is more of the correct term for me because my ancestors were slaves and not all black people are African-American. I think it is a way to differentiate myself and insert that there are differences, but I think that the relationship is more complex than it seems. As privileged as I am to be an American citizen, my ancestors were not immigrants. They came against their will. I've talked on my platform before about how being an American citizen is a privilege, and globally speaking, it is. However, from a racial lens, it is more complicated, as being in America came at the expense of my ancestors' well-beings. Based on other nuances like America's global standing and the fact that we can't change our history, I still consider being an American citizen a privilege. But like every country, the U.S. has its flaws and that shouldn't be ignored. Racism still exists and blackness is still treated as a monolith. But there is potential to change that, and that should be changed. It may take years, even decades, but it is a battle worth fighting. Past generations of black people had to fight for their rights and sustain them, it will not be easy, but everyone who's willing to commit to the fight, regardless of race, must be in it for the long run. Today's episode was titled, Newsflash, Black People Are Not a Monolith. This episode covered the following topics. The monolithic perspective of black people in American society. The difference between black people and their experiences based on background and upbringing, plus near universal struggles with racism the Uncle Tom stereotype that has played the Black community as a whole, the history of differences and commonalities among African-American folks pre- and post-Civil War, the truth about Black people voting Democrat, plus the myth of the Black vote. This episode was brought to you by various scholars and valuable insight from 17 sources. To view the list in full, visit the sources section of the episode description box. Thank you to everyone who's listened up to this point. I hope you learned some stuff in this episode and engaged your mind with the content. A disclaimer is that my opinions are not represented by the general public nor of every black person. However, the goal is to start a discussion about these issues and encourage everyone to think critically. It is important that we self-reflect on our prior knowledge, new knowledge, our biases, and how we benefit or suffer from a particular issue. In turn, that can lead to more consciousness about our actions, our biases, and lead to a more equitable and balanced society. In the meantime, I would like to hear about your takeaways or feedback on this episode. Your takes and additional subject knowledge are always welcome. Get the discussion rolling by writing to findingthenorthstarpodcast at gmail.com. Until then, this is Krista Savage-White signing off.